want to invite you to open your Bibles to Psalm 38. We're continuing our series in the book of Psalms this morning. And we are turning to Psalm 38. We'll be looking at the whole Psalm, verses 1 to 22. You can open that up. We'll turn there shortly. Some of you probably are familiar with a comedian named Tim Hawkins. He is a follower of Jesus. Uh, he performed here in Edmonton a number of years ago. I think the Light Laugh for Life Gala. And Christine and I had the privilege of going to see him uh, with my mother-in-law and enjoyed it. Uh, obviously, today you can look him up on YouTube and, and uh, listen to all kinds of um, comedy by him. One of the stories that he tells uh, is about a time where he was... Uh, he'd performed at a large church, and after the concert, people were coming to him for autographs. And one woman came to him and, and wanted an autograph and said, oh, can you write down your favorite Bible verse for me? And, and Tim, uh, followers, he thought, for, for sure, I, he'd do that. But then he had one of those moments where he just had a brain cramp. His favorite verse, he says, is Psalm 34, 8. We actually sung a song about that. A taste and see that the Lord is good. But his mind went completely blank. So he did something very foolish. He just picked another psalm. He just wrote down another reference. He, he wrote down Psalm 38, 7, uh, Tim Hawkins. And he decided then he would do that through the rest of the night for the rest of the autographs that he was signing. Uh, Psalm 38, 7, Tim Hawkins. Psalm 38, 7, Tim Hawkins. And it wasn't until after he was leaving the venue that he realized, I should, I should quickly look up what that psalm was. And to his absolute horror, he discovered that it reads, For my loins are filled with a painful disease. This morning, we will be exploring Tim Hawkins' favorite Bible verse and the chapter in which that particular verse is found, Psalm 38. A few reminders as we begin. Uh, first, the book of Psalms is a collection of prayers recited and sung by the people of God over the centuries. This is not so much about us getting more information as it is about teaching us how to respond to God, giving voice to our prayers to God, the one who has revealed himself to us, the one before whom we live our lives. Second, we've looked over the last two weeks at Psalm 1 and Psalm 2, which function together to introduce us to the Psalter, to this book of prayers. Psalm 1 put before us a choice that, that is before every one of us, every person, that is a choice between the way of blessedness and the way of destruction. And what we discovered there, what we realized is that the way of blessedness is the, those who walk in that way are those who delight themselves in the law of the Lord, meditating on it day and night. That is, they delight in God's word, in God's word to them. Psalm 2 helps us take a step back from that choice and, and look more globally, more cosmically. We see history. We see the nations, the peoples, kings and rulers uh, in rebellion against God, foolishly and in vain, raging against God, conspiring against God, resisting his reign and his rule, and the reign and rule of his appointed king, the Messiah. And although Psalm 2 certainly includes some sobering words of warning, it concludes with what stands out is this gracious invitation to all, to God's enemies, among whom we all stood once, to come, to bow, to serve, to find refuge in Christ, to find refuge in his appointed Messiah King. 
This morning we, we turn away from the introduction and we are going to look at uh, one of the prayers that we find, a, a prayer in Psalm 38. Now I've already noted that we're not going to look at all 150 psalms over the course of this series, but I will be choosing a variety of psalms, a sampling if you will, and not in any particular order, but with the goal of exposing us to uh, a diverse and variegated collection of prayers, God's people crying out in all manner of circumstances. And so this morning I have chosen to begin this uh, exploration with Psalm 38, a prayer for salvation, a prayer for salvation in the midst of desperate suffering. Now, if there's one thing that you write down this morning, I want it to be this, that, that what we will see, what will become clear as we pray this prayer with David is that God brings salvation through suffering. God brings salvation through suffering. Would you turn with me uh, to Psalm 38 as I read it for us this morning? Lord, do not rebuke me in your anger or discipline me in your wrath. Your arrows have pierced me and your hand has come down on me. Because of your wrath, there is no health in my body. There is no soundness in my bones because of my sin. My guilt has overwhelmed me like a burden too heavy to bear. My wounds fester and are loathsome because of my sinful folly. I am bowed down and brought very low. All day long I go about mourning. My back is filled with searing pain. There is no health in my body. I am feeble and utterly crushed. I groan in anguish of heart. All my longings lie open before you, Lord. My sighing is not hidden from you. My heart pounds, my strength fails me. Even the light has gone from my eyes. My friends and companions avoid me because of my wounds. My neighbors stay far away. Those who want to kill me set their traps. Those who would harm me talk of my ruin. All day long they scheme and lie. I am like the deaf who cannot hear. Like the mute who cannot speak, I have become like one who does not hear, whose mouth can offer no reply. Lord, I wait for you. You will answer, Lord my God. For I said, do not let them gloat or exalt themselves over me when my feet slip. For I am about to fall and my pain is ever with me. I confess my iniquity. I am troubled by my sin. Many have become my enemies without cause. Those who hate me without reason are numerous. Those who repay my good with evil lodge accusations against me, though I seek only to do what is good. Lord, do not forsake me. Do not be far from me, my God. Come quickly to help me, my Lord and my Savior. This morning, after saying a few preliminary things, I want to explore this prayer with you under four headings, in four parts. First, the heading, horrific suffering. Second, humble confession. Third, honest disclosure. Fourth, hopeful waiting. Horrific suffering, humble confession, honest disclosure, and hopeful waiting. A few preliminaries first. Uh, first, this psalm, this prayer, as, as do many of the psalms, not all of them, but it begins with a prescript that tells us a couple things. It tells us that this is a psalm of David, and it tells us that this is a petition. What does that all mean? Well, of David obviously points to its author. This psalm, this prayer, comes from the life of uh, and the pen of King David. Certainly not all of the psalms, but many of the psalms do come from David, the poet, the musician, 
the shepherd king of Israel. Now, David was not, and we'll be reminded of that in this psalm, David was not a, uh, a perfect man, a sinless man by any means, but yet he is the greatest king in the history of Israel, the, the archetype of what a king should be like. So this is of David. It's from him. Uh, it is also a petition. What does that mean? Uh, the, the word translated petition also can be translated remembrance. Uh, this, is, this is about uh, a means to remind, if you will, to, to make oneself remembered. The goal, the aim of the psalmist David is to be remembered by God. That is to get God's attention, if you will. Uh, Bruce Walkey and, and James Houston write this, When Israel went to war, she sounded a blast on a ram's horn to remind God that they were going to battle, to, to get God's attention, and, and it, to be remembered by God. But it, God remembering means that God acts upon a previous commitment. It's not that God forgets. It, it's, it's a call that God would act based on a previous commitment. In Genesis 8.1, we read that God remembered Noah. It's not that God you know, forgot about Noah and his family floating in the ark and like, oh shoot, I left them out there. God remembering them means God acting based on his previous commitment. So that's what David's crying out for. Uh, he's crying out in desperation for God to act based on uh, the commitment God has made to him, the covenant relationship that he is in with God. Second, this is a personal lament uh, psalm. Uh, historically, it's one of what we call the seven penitential psalms, traditionally psalms that were read during the season of Lent uh, as the church approaches the celebration of Christ's death on the cross at Easter. Penitential comes from a Greek word that is translated in the New Testament, repentance. And of course, in Catholic, uh, the Catholic world, we, we get the word penance, this idea that there are things that, that we do to get God's forgiveness, and that's something that we would disagree with, but that, that word comes from that, penitential. Here we see David repenting of his sin and crying out to God for help. Certainly, David is not inflicting pain on his own life. He's not, he's not doing penance. That is foreign uh, to Scripture. Uh, he is crying out, to God for forgiveness in his pain. Third and finally, let me comment on the occasion of this psalm. In contrast to Psalm 51, which is also of David, Psalm 51 is of David after he was confronted by the prophet Nathan, following his sin of adultery with Bathsheba and his plotting for the murder of Bathsheba's husband Uriah. Nathan the prophet confronted David with his sin, and, and out of that experience, David wrote Psalm 51. We know that. We don't know the occasion. We don't know the particular sin that, uh, that lies behind this psalm. And it, it is really of no value to us to try and figure it out. Charles Spur uh, Spurgeon writes this, It would be foolish to make a guess as to the point in David's history when it was written. We don't know the particular details of David's sin or the occasion of this, only that he did sin. And knowing those details are unimportant, this psalm still functions as intended. David's prayer to God and a model of prayer for us, a prayer for salvation. It gives voice to us as we cry out to God for his saving acts in our lives. Now let's turn to the prayer proper. And our first heading was horrific suffering. Walk in Houston, write this. No psalm depicts sickness in such an extended, numbing way. As the psalmist can endure no further suffering, neither can his audience endure further reading about them. 
I don't know what your experience was as I read Psalm 38, but it really is overwhelming. An overwhelming account of great suffering, physical suffering in the life of David. He, he describes it in a variety of ways. Verse 3, there is no health in my body. There is no soundness in my bones. Verse 5, my wounds fester and are loathsome. Uh, verse 6, I am bowed down and brought very low. All day long I go about mourning. Verse 7 and 8, my back is filled with searing pain, or my loins is how the King James Version puts it. There is no health in my body. I am feeble and utterly crushed. I groan in anguish of heart. It is unnecessary for us to try to discern the particular ailment. What, what was it David was suffering? Some people will try and analyze his symptoms and figure out what he had, but really that's, that's completely unnecessary and irrelevant for us. What is abundantly clear is that David is suffering terribly, suffering physically. He is sick. He is in desperate pain, bent over, burning pain in his back, is how the NIV puts it. The ESV says in his sides. That's where the King James Version uh, puts it. My loins are filled with a loathsome disease. He's in his gut. David is, is, is burning. He's, he's suffering deeply. A bit later in verse 10 we read, his heart pounds, his heart palpitates, his strength is failing him, light fading from his eyes, that is, even his eyesight is beginning to fail. David's physical suffering was extreme in its quantity. But it, its quantity was matched by its extreme duration. Verse 6 says, all day long, all day long I go about mourning. It, it is overwhelming for us to thoughtfully read this prayer. Psalm 38, this description of David's physical suffering. But his physical suffering is not the sum total of all of David's suffering. There's more going on. David is also suffering psychologically. He is under the burden of guilt. He knows, and I'll speak more directly to this in a few moments, but he knows that he stands guilty before God, that his suffering is deserved, that his suffering comes from the hand of God, that this sickness is the consequence of his sin. Listen to what he says in verse 4. My guilt has overwhelmed me like a burden too heavy to bear. He, he, he feels the, the weight of conviction, the weight of his guilt for his sin before God. So his suffering is not only physical, it is also psychological, spiritual, but there's more. Beyond his physical and psychological suffering, David is experiencing social pain. He has been abandoned by his friends, and he is being attacked by his enemies. Listen again to verses 11 and 12. My friends and companions avoid me because of my wounds. My neighbors stay far away. Those who want to kill me set their traps, and those who would harm me talk of my ruin. All day long they scheme and lie. Those in David's inner circle that he should have been able to count on, those who should have been there for him have abandoned him and left him alone in his suffering. And, and those who hate David, those who are his enemies, take advantage of his suffering to try and pile on and inflict still more harm on him, even to kill him. Walkie and Houston sum things up well where they say, a persistent complaint of ceaseless sufferings permeate the psalm. A persistent complaint of ceaseless sufferings permeate the psalm. David is at the end of his proverbial rope. He is hanging by a thread. And as readers, we want to look away. It's, it's hard to read this. It's hard to read this thoughtfully. 
and actually take to heart what we are seeing. It's, it's horrific suffering, overwhelming, numbing. Leads us to our second heading, humble confession. At, at this point, I want to address what is a critical matter for us to, to explore in this psalm, namely David's guilt and the connection, the relationship between David's guilt and his suffering. It, it is clear to David that his physical suffering, that this sickness, whatever it is, is the consequence of David's sin. And, and he is convinced that it comes from the hand of God. Listen, verse 2, your arrows have pierced me. And your hand has come down on me. Because of your wrath, there is no health in my body. There is no soundness in my bones because of my sin. The imagery David employs here is that, of, that he is a badly wounded warrior and of God as the mighty warrior who has dealt him those grave wounds. And David readily, readily acknowledges that God has done so because of his own sin. Because of his guilt before Yahweh, before I am. In verse 5, David reiterates that same conviction. My wounds fester and are loathsome because of my sinful folly. Nowhere in this psalm does David suggest that he does not deserve what he is suffering from physically. Nowhere does he fault God for what he is going through. He owns it. He recognizes his sin and he recognizes this physical suffering as a consequence from God's hand for his sin. He readily acknowledges his sin and his guilt. He accepts this illness as his just deserts, but he also cries out for mercy. He deserves God's anger. He deserves God's wrath. James Montgomery Boyce writes this, David is not suggesting that he does not deserve the sickness that has come on him. He is not faulting God for a second. He deserves anger, but he is asking God to show mercy instead. It is vital at this point that we pause to address the relationship between suffering and sin, between sickness and sin. Here there is an undeniable connection. David's sin, David's guilt... And David's sickness and suffering are interrelated. One has come because of the other. But it is equally clear from other passages of Scripture that such is not always the case. We can look at the example of Job, uh, about whom we read this. He, that is Job, was blameless and upright. He feared God and shunned evil. And yet Job suffered terribly, not because of his sin, we think of the story in John 9 where the disciples come to Jesus and, and ask Jesus about this man who was born blind and say, uh, why was he born blind? Because of his own sin or the sin of his parents? And Jesus says, neither. It was that the glory of God might be revealed in him. That is, the Bible is clear that often suffering is not connected to our sin. It is not a consequence of our sin. But it is also true that sometimes it is. Derek Kidner puts it this way, it would be as wrong to think this is never so as that it is always so. Not all suffering is the result of sin, but some suffering is the consequence of our sin. Why? Why would God inflict pain on David? Why would God 
uh, inflict pain on us. Now, we cannot wrestle this question through as fully as we might want to, but two things need to be said in answer to it. First is that pain can alert us to the seriousness and the dangers of sin in our life. And secondly, uh, out of the greatness of God's love for us, he wants to root that sin out of our lives. So first, the seriousness of sin. And secondly, why? Because God loves us. The seriousness and danger of sin, we need to recognize, and I believe that the church in the West has, has in many cases, we've lost, we've lost our sense of the gravity of sin. We've lost our sense of the danger of sin, of, of, of the fact that sin is lethal, that sin kills. Romans 6.23, for the wages of sin is death. Paul writes this, at the conclusion of chapter 6 in Romans, in which he is countering uh, erroneous thinking. He, he's challenging any idea that, be, be, he says, you know, where sin increases, God's grace increases. And where people would say, well, hey, if God's grace increases, the more sin increases, should we just go on sinning? And, and Paul pulls out his hair and says, by no means. By no means, a little later in chapter 6, he, he says, because we are now under, uh, under grace and not law, should we go on sinning? He says, by no means. The wages of sin is death. He, he speaks of the, the deadliness of sin. James writes this in his epistle, when sin is full grown, it gives birth to death. Sin is an enemy. Sin is deadly. Sin is not something that we are to toy with, that we are to take lightly. Romans 8.13 says, if you live according to the flesh, you will die. But if by the Spirit you put to death the deeds of the body, you will live. Charles Spurgeon said, Awakened sinners think their sins to be mere shallows. Unawakened sinners think their sins to be mere shallows, but when the conscience is aroused, they find out the depth of iniquity. He says, when God convicts us of our sin, when the Holy Spirit convicts us of our sin, suddenly we are awakened to the gravity of it, of the ugliness of it, the destructive power of it, the deadliness of it. There is a danger that you and I would minimize sin. That we would minimize the seriousness of sin. That we would minimize the deadliness of sin. That, that we would treat Christ's grace cheaply. Why would God inflict pain? Why would God discipline us? Because he wants to alert us to the seriousness of sin. And second side of that answer, he wants to do so because of his great love for us. Sometimes God introduces pain into our life to alert us to the dangers of sin and to, to, to get us to turn back to him. C.S. Lewis wrote this, these famous words, pain is God's megaphone. Pain is God's megaphone. You've likely heard the, the saying, God loves us as we are, but he loves us too much to leave us as we are. That really gets at this. God loves us as we are, broken, sinful, rebellious men and women. Christ came for us to save us when we were his enemies. But Christ, in his love for us, loves us too much to simply leave us where we were, to leave us how we were. He wants to transform us. 
into the women and men that he created us to be, women and men who would reflect his character, women and men who would be who he made us to be, truly human. We need to understand that sin dehumanizes us. God's law, not a bunch of arbitrary rules. God didn't create us and go, I have people, they need rules. God wants us, he created us to reflect his likeness. He created us as his image bearers, and sin mars that. Sin destroys that. And so as we grow in obedience, as we grow in holiness, we are in fact becoming more human, more who we were created to be. And God in his love desires that for us. Derek Kidner writes this, pain and guilt can cause a person to flee from God, but the psalmist instead rightly turns to God for help. When we experience pain because of our sin, God's desire is that that pain would cause us to turn to him and seek his mercy and to seek his help. That's the aim of God. Now this does leave us with an important question. How can I know? How can I know when I suffer, if I am suffering in any particular moment, whether it is on account of sin in my life? How can I know if this pain comes from the hand of God to try and get my attention to correct me? I think think James Montgomery Boyce offers a helpful response. He says, if God is using sickness, or I will add suffering to stop us short and bring us back to him, he will make it clear that this is what he is doing. We can come to God in prayer and we can ask him to show us when we suffer. Lord, is this from you? Is there something in my life that you are wanting to correct? Is there somewhere in my life where I have been going the wrong way? And if that is the case, God will show you. He will make it clear. And I want to say again, the Bible is abundantly clear that not all sickness, not all suffering is because of personal sin. But we need to recognize that sometimes it might be from the hand of God to turn us from our sin to him. The author of the book of Hebrews writes this, My son, do not make light of the Lord's discipline, and do not lose heart when he rebukes you, because the Lord disciplines the one he loves, and he chastens everyone he accepts as his son. David recognizes his sin and his guilt before God. He recognizes his suffering is coming from the hand of God because of his sin and guilt. And here he humbly confesses, verse 18, I confess my iniquity. I am troubled by my sin. Let's turn to our third heading. And this will be a little bit more brief, but the third heading is honest disclosure. Here in this psalm, in this prayer, David pours out his heart to God. David pours out his pain to God. He doesn't hold back. He doesn't hold anything back. He acknowledges that he deserves the physical suffering he's enduring, but he also speaks of the abandonment he's, he's experienced at the, from his friends, the unjust attacks he's receiving from his enemies. He cries out to God, honestly disclosing all that he is going through. All that he is suffering. Here's what I want us to see. We all are invited to do the same. We, when we come to to God in prayer, we need not hold anything back. We can pour out our hearts. We We can proclaim our pain, our suffering, our struggles to God with complete openness and honesty. 
Look at verse 9. All my longings lie open before you, Lord. My sighing is not hidden from you. David knows that God already knows. God knows his guilt. God knows his pain. God knows all that he is suffering. And David just pours it out. Pours it out to God, knowing that God already knows it. He, he doesn't have to hold it back. He doesn't have to churchify it. He doesn't have to clean up his language. He just pours his heart out openly and honestly from where he is. Our prayers can be that real. Full, open, honest disclosure. Our fourth heading is that of hopeful waiting. Hopeful waiting. In the midst of our suffering, in the midst of our pain, in the midst of our guilt, we can cry out to God honestly. We can have full disclosure. We don't have to hold back. But, but is there anything else we can do? Is there anything else we should do? Does the prayer of David here give us any direction the answer is indeed it does. Look at verse 15. There we read this. Lord, I wait for you. You will answer, Lord my God. Lord, I wait for you. I wait for you. David is crushed under the, the weight of his guilt. David is suffering physically. He's in agony, suffering. But David has not given up hope. David has is, is been abandoned by his friends. David is being attacked by his enemies. But David has not given up hope. His hope is in Yahweh. His hope is in I am, his covenant partner, his covenant God. And so he cries out with that hope for God to move, for God to act, for God to save. He cries out and he waits. He waits patiently. He waits on God. Waiting is hard to do. Waiting in the midst of our suffering is hard to do. Uh, waiting at the best of times is hard. Our culture is profoundly bad at waiting. We want everything now. We want everything yesterday. Instant. Quick. How many of you are guilty of ever standing in front of a microwave waiting for that hot dog to cook going, man, hurry up. Remember the olden days when we had to boil them? I know some of you are going, you eat hot dogs? Waiting is hard. David is a great example to us of a man who knew how to wait. Between the time that the prophet Samuel anointed him to be king over Israel and the day David became king, David waited. He, he waited. He, he, he was running for his life. He waited for years. He, he suffered, but he waited for God to save. He waited for God to fulfill that promise. Between the time that David was first crowned king in Hebron and the day when he was crowned king over all of Israel, David waited. He waited for seven years for God to fulfill his promise. When David's son Absalom revolted and led a rebellion, David fled and he waited upon God to resolve that situation. It is not likely that the Psalms are arranged in anything that would resemble chronological order. But here in Psalm 38, David follows the instruction that David penned in Psalm 37, where we read, Be still before the Lord and wait patiently for him. 
Be still before the Lord and wait patiently for him. David waits. Bearing the weight of his guilt, he waits. In the midst of tremendous physical suffering, he waits. Abandoned and alone, he waits. Unjustly attacked by his enemies, he waits. David waited for the Lord. And note this. This psalm, Psalm 38, this prayer concludes with David still waiting. Still waiting. Waiting with faith. Waiting, trusting in God. But things are not resolved as the psalm comes to its end. We find no celebration of the dawning of God's salvation. Uh, David has not experienced that yet. We find David waiting, trusting, believing. Listen, Lord, do not forsake me. Do not be far from me, my God. Come quickly to help me, my Lord and my Savior. David is waiting. And his waiting is rooted in the character of God. He knows that God is merciful. He knows that God is faithful. He knows that salvation comes only from God, not from anybody else. And so he cries out to God and he waits upon God, confident that God's salvation will come. And until it does, he will wait. Tremper Longman III writes this. Psalm 38 provides a model of prayer for those who feel deep sorrow over their sin. Not just to express their pain, but also to repent and turn to God. But there is more here for us to see than simply a model of prayer. I said in my introduction that God brings salvation through suffering. That God brings his salvation through suffering. David suffered because of his sin. David suffered physically. David was abandoned by his friends. David did good to his enemies and they did evil. They sought to kill him. But one day, another king would come. Another king and he would walk through this same experience only on vastly, uh, to a vastly greater measure. Jesus would suffer for sin. Not his, but for mine and for yours and for the sins of the world. Jesus would suffer terribly physically as he was nailed to a cross, crucified in the most horrific way to kill a person. Jesus would be abandoned by his friends. Jesus who did good was repaid evil by his enemies. Enemies who would not only seek to kill him, but enemies who would in fact kill him. David cried out, Lord, do not forsake me. Jesus one day would cry out on the cross, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Jesus would endure what David desperately didn't want to so that David wouldn't, so that salvation could come. Jesus would do this. He came to do this willingly, gladly, for you and for me, out of love for us, out of love for the world, out of love for his enemies, to extend mercy, to bring salvation through his suffering. Walking Houston writes, salvation is provided for all who, like David, confess their sins and wait upon God for his sure help and deliverance. In Psalm 38, we, to, we learn to pray for salvation. And if you are here this morning and you've never put your faith in Jesus, you can do so today. Jesus 
loves you. Jesus came and suffered for you to bring salvation for you. So I implore you, cry out for his mercy, cry out for his help, cry out for salvation, and Jesus will save you. His salvation will come. That does not mean a life free of any pain or struggle or suffering, but his love and his grace will be poured out in your life and he will transform you. He will adopt you. You will be a daughter, a son of the God Almighty who made you who loves you. And for those of us already in relationship with God, like David, here we learn to come to Jesus, to come in our pain, to come confessing our need for his mercy, to come honestly and openly hiding nothing, to come to him and wait, to to wait in faith with confidence Confidence that is rooted in Christ. Confidence that is rooted in what Christ accomplished at the cross. Knowing that God has brought salvation to us through the suffering of Christ. Amen.